Praise the Lord. We're going to look at the, the book of Jude, the letter of Jude. Um, but we are actually, last week we read the whole letter um, uh, last week, but today we will be reading again. But uh, actually, I would like to read um, kind of David Parson's translation of Jude. It's, it's kind of paraphrasing what um, the book of Jude. So I think it will be kind of giving us the modern taste uh, to understanding this letter. So I'll be reading from the Parsons translation. This letter comes from Judas, the Jude for short, one of the slaves bought by King Jesus and the brother of James you well know. It is addressed to those who have been called out of the world, who are now loved ones in the family of God the Father, and who are being kept for presentation to King Jesus. May you have more and more of the mercy, peace, and love you have already experienced. Loved ones, I was fully intending to correspond with you about the wonderful salvation we share but found I have to write quite a different kind of letter. I must urge you to keep up the painful struggle for the preservation of the true faith which was passed on to the early church ones and for all. I've heard that certain persons who shall be nameless have sneaked in among you, godless men who sentenced for doom long ago. They twist the free grace of God into an excuse for blatant immorality, and they deny that the King Jesus is our only Master and Lord. Now, I have to remind you some of those absolute truths which you already know perfectly well, particularly that God is not someone to be trifled with. You will recall the Lord bought the whole nation safely out of Egypt, but the next time he intervened, they were all exterminated for not trusting him. Nowhere his angels any more exempt than his people. When some of them deserted their rank and abandoned their proper station, they took them into custody. He took them into custody. He is keeping them permanently chained in the lowest and darkest dungeon until their trial on that great day of judgment. And in the same way, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, together with those from two neighboring towns, gloated themselves with gross debauchery, craving for abnormal intercourse, just as the angel had done. And the fate they suffer in the fire that burned for ages is a solemn warning to a soul. In spite of such example in history, these people who have wormed their way into your fellowship polluted their own bodies on exactly the same manner. They belittle divine authority and smear angels in glory. Yet even the chief of all angels, Mikael, Michael, whose very name means godlike, did not dare to accuse Satan directly of blasphemy about arguing who owned the body of Moses. 
And he was content to leave accusations to God himself and said simply, the Lord rebuke you. But these are men among you don't hesitate to malign whatever they don't understand. And the only thing they do understand will prove their undoing in the end for their knowledge of life comes only from their animal instincts like brute beasts without any capacity for reason. Oh, betide them. They've gone down the same road as Cain. They have rushed the headlong into the same mistake as Balaam and the same motivation, money. They come to the same end as Korah did in his rebellion. These people have cheek to eat with you at your fellowship meal of love, though they are only looking for pastures for themselves. Like submerged rocks, they could wreck everything. They are like clouds driven past so hard by the wind that they give no rain. They are like uprooted trees in the autumn with their leaves nor fruit doubly dead. They are like wild waves of the sea stirring up the filthy foam of their own odious disgrace. They are like shooting stars falling out of orbit destined to disappear down a black hole forever. Enoch, who lived only seven generations after the first man, Adam, saw all these coming. He was referring to these very people when he made his prophetic announcement. Look out. The Lord has arrived with 10,000 of his angels to put all human beings to trial and convict all godless people of all godless deeds they have committed in their godless lives. And of the heart sins these godless sinners have spoken against him. These people are discontented grumblers, always complaining and finding faults. Their mouths are full of big talks about themselves, but they are not about flattering others when it is to their advantage. Now, loved ones, you should have remembered what the apostles of our Lord Jesus said what would happen. They predicted that in final age, there are bound to be those who pour scorns on ungodliness, whose lives will only be governed by their own godless cravings. People like this can only create divisions among you since they only have their natural instincts to go by and they lack the guidance of the Spirit. As for you, loved ones, be sure to go on building yourselves up on the solid foundation of your holy faith, praying in the way of the Spirit gives you. Stay in love with God, waiting patiently for the time when the, our Lord Jesus Christ, in His sheer mercy, will bring you into immortal living. As regards the others, regards the others, here is my advice to those who are still wavering. Be especially kind and gentle. Those who's already been led into error must be snatched from the fire before they are badly burned. And those who had been thoroughly contaminated 
should be treated better than they deserve, though you must never lose a healthy fear of being infected yourself, even by their stained underwear. Let us just praise the one person who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand upright in his glorious presence without any imperfection, but with great jubilation. The only God there is, and he is our Savior too. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, for to him alone belongs all glory, all majesty, all power, and all authority before history began, now in this present time, and for all ages to come. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. Uh, what a powerful way to, uh, to uh, kind of paraphrasing the letter of the Jude in this way. Uh, today we are continuing the book of Jude as we are learning about what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ in this end of the last days. If you recall last week, we talked about there are two themes that Jude is uh, trying to uh, emphasize. The first is to expose false teachers and their evil influence in the church. And second is to encourage believers to contend earnestly for the faith that they have in Christ and finish strong. Those are two main themes of this letter. And last week, we have started to discuss what it means to contend for the faith that we have in Christ and finish strong in the light of various dangers the church faced since the very first church. Because all churches are all in danger. Some face external danger, persecution from outside, but that is not something to really worry about because that will just push the Christians together and make them stronger, and the church always grows under persecution. But it is a dangerous from inside, perhaps the legalism or liberalism. Christians who are too narrow-minded and Christians who are too broad-minded and these are the dangers from inside, and they can clearly destroy the body of Christ. According to one commentator, legalism says you are not free to sin. You are not free to sin. You are to be follow the law for the salvation, to earn the salvation. You are not free to sin, not in our church, not in this place. You're not. We got rules to follow. Thus, we must comply. License says, you are free to sin. It's okay to sin. We are a Christian now. Once you're saved, always saved. You'll be taken to heaven. It does not really matter. You might lose a bit of reward possibly and blessings in this world, but you won't lose the kingdom. You are free to sin, in other words. That's license. What, what about the liberty in Christ? It says, you are free not to sin. And there's a, there is a difference, isn't it? The true liberty says, in, in the spirit, you are, not, you are free 
now, not to sin. And that is the freedom that nobody has except those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? But it is clear that the plenty of Christians today who don't seem to find it yet, that we are free not to sin. But think about it. We are free not to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a real freedom that Jesus is talking about. Now, knowing the danger from the inside, Jude is writing to us. He said, I wanted to write in a different letter to you. I want to just write about what? Salvation that we have and how we can enjoy it in Christ. But I had to change the content of my letter because I'm really urging you to keep up or content for your faith. The Parsons word, what? Keep up the painful struggle. By the way, to contend for faith, but to contend is to agonize, to fight. That's what it means. It's the most painful struggle that Jude is saying that you will ever have when you struggle to keep the faith in the truth in the church. Why is it painful? Because we are dealing with Christians, the brothers and sisters in Christ. He is not writing to non-Christians. He's not writing to the false, false religious people. He's actually writing to Christian people who are struggling with this issue. That is why it's so painful. Isn't it painful to deal with the problems in the family? Probably the most painful thing that we can actually experience. And Jude is writing that. He said that the false teacher have secretly, secretly slipped in to your fellowship. They kind of sneaked in and they come in the back door somehow and they are poisoning the whole fellowship of the body of Christ. The question is then, how do false teachers promote their corrupted ways in the church? Today, I would like to kind of looking into that. How this corruption starts by the influence of the evil false teachers so that we will somehow learn to contend or agonize to fight for our holy and pure faith in our daily lives as a Christian. Amen? Amen. Let's look at that. Four things that I would like to look at is first thing, it starts with how does how do false teachers promote corruption in the church? First, it starts with the perversion of the creed. Everyone say creed. Where the corruption of the creed, what you believe. It starts with what you believe, doesn't it? This is where it all starts. And the two things that Jude mentions are these. First, the sentimental view of God and synchronistic view of Jesus. This is what, what they're facing. And listen to this. It's going to be you probably shock you. These are the things that we are also dealing with in the church today in the 21st century. It was not only for the first century church, it was also for the 21st century. Listen to this. Sentimental view of God thinks that God's grace is an excuse for immorality. You know that the God doesn't take sin seriously anymore. He's a nice God. He forgives us. That's what the Bible says. He forgives and forgives and forgets. And all I want to be, all he wants us to be is to be happy 
with our lives. Isn't that true what's happening? This sentimental view of God. And I tell you, if you watch TVs, and I'm talking about many preachers today, this kind of message of sentimental view of God is being preached everywhere. We don't want to talk about sins in the church anymore because people might be feel bad about themselves and they might be offended. This is a big problem for the first church as well because these false teachers were basically using God's grace as an excuse to sin. It's okay. God's grace is covering us all. They saw the grace of God as a kind of light view of sin. It doesn't really matter. I just want, God will just forgive you. There was one famous poet, poet in, in, in Paris back in 1800s. He lived a wayward life. He was living with multiple partners, and his partners also had multiple partners, and he just very sensual, sensual life, sensuous life. Now, at the end of his life, he was about to die, so they called priest um, uh, to, to, to deal with him. And the priest actually asked him, why don't you confess your sins before you go to the presence of God? And he said, I won't confess my sins. And he said, why won't you confess your sins? He asked. The answer was this. God will forgive me Anyways, that's who he is. That's his trait. Isn't that what the people taught us? The sentimental view of God that take the grace of God too lightly, that we abuse the grace of Jesus today. But that's the story of today's world, today's Christianity. We don't want to talk about sin. As a matter of fact, it will offend people. But what's happening in the world, in the church today, is that we are so careful not to offend people, but as a result, we are actually offending God. And I think that's a huge problem, this sentimental view of God. The God is the same yesterday, today, and is to come. The Old Test- God of the Old Testament is God of the New Testament. God never changes. His word never changes. Amen. The other side of this that Jude was writing against is, was this. These false teachers tool a synchronistic view of Jesus. They no longer believe that Jesus is the only master and Lord. They said there is another way. We can actually follow the law and we can actually achieve and earn our salvation. Once you put Jesus in the pantheon, pantheon with other deities, he is no longer only way to God. But isn't that what's happening today? People say, Christians are saying, oh, we cannot offend people for their religious views and system. Perhaps God will save them. And as all religions at the end lead to God. You think it is not true, but this I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about 
teachers of the Bible talk about these things. Synchronistic view, the view of Jesus. So sentimental view, synchronistic view. These are the two problems in the very first church in the first century. What about 21st century? My brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is God. There is no other. We might, the tr- this truth might offend many people, yes. But that's the truth. That's what the Bible says. And Jude is saying, we need to hold on to that. So what happens? They are trying to, these false teachers, false doctrines, for evil patterns, evil influence. They are trying to first corrupt the creed, what we believe, right? That is what's happening today as it happened in the first church. Now, once you've corrupted the people's creed, it is now long before their conduct goes haywire. Because ultimately, your belief determines your behavior. And the Jude now comes to the most hardest part of his warning. Now, he's talk, remember, he's talking to Christians, and he says, Look what happened to the Jews who misbehaved. Look what happened to the angels who misbehaved. And look what happened to all the people, inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what happened to those people. And he said, God's people are not exempt from judgment if we go down to that road. That's his warning is clear. And that's why he gave three examples. And last week, we kind of looked each one of them. But let me actually go back to it. Maybe we can kind of look into it a little bit more deeper. Let us look at them. First of all, Israelites in the wilderness. You all remember what happened with the Israelites. As soon as they got out, when Moses went up to the Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, you remember what happened, right? They made, they were confused. Whom are, whom are we supposed to worship? So they starting to what? Build golden calf and idolatry orgies, immorality, all kinds of things they were doing just because Moses was absent. They made their own image of God. Since they got wrong view of God, they had a wrong view of each other. That's why they were doing unthinkable things in the name of worship. They stopped loving God and worshiping God, thus they stopped loving each other, then mistreated each other. Imagine those people who are involved in that kind of sexual immorality as a people. What would happen to them? What would happen to those women? Well, this is what they did in the wilderness, and the result was none of them got into the promised land. None. Except two who did not participate in. Who? Joshua and Caleb. Right? That's why we like the name Caleb. Right? Joshua, the man who followed, kept their faith until the end. Right? But interestingly, who are these Israelites? They had been redeemed from Egypt. Right? They were redeemed from Egypt. But they did not make it into the promised land. 
They started well in the beginning, and God redeemed them from the slavery, but they did not finish well. They could not enter to the promised land. Now listen. This particular instant is used three times in the New Testament by three different writers to warn Christians that it is not those who start, but to those who finish. Okay? Three times. You know what? First, Paul. Paul uses it. Writer of Hebrew uses it. And Jude here uses it. Don't forget, remember Hebrew chapter 4? Do you, don't shipwreck your faith like those people who did in the wilderness. And they are all writing to what? To who? To Christians. If, my brothers and sisters, the children of Israel who got out of Egypt, who were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but did not make it, don't you think it can happen to Christians who do not follow the way of God? We can call ourselves, we are Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, but if we are not careful, if we are not content for our faith, what will happen to us? Do you think we are just automatically exempt from the judgment? Just we say ourselves, oh, we believe in Jesus Christ. Those who abuse grace will not enter into the kingdom of God, meaning those who do, who do the abused grace means they don't really, really have faith. They don't really understand. This is very, very scary warning, I think. So he moves on to the second example. What about you think just the Israelites? Also the angels that God created. They, we know the story. They seduced some demons or angels. They seduced human women and impregnated them. And if you look at Genesis chapter 6, you will clearly see what actually happened. And if you actually read the book of Enoch, that they will actually explain even more. He actually writes that there's 200 angels seduced human women and impregnated them. And this horrible intercourse between angels and humans took place, and the result was a horrible creature called Nephilim. And we don't know who they are. The Bible just describes in some translations as they're giants, monsters. But we don't know who they are. But thank God they're gone because of the Noah's flood. They are wiped away. But God has this, his order of life, and it is offensive to him that the angel actually had sex with, sexual relationship with the human beings, just as human be beings should have sex with animals. It's abomination to God. It's unthinkable things, but that's what happened. And Jude is actually writing this, and this is what he's saying. If God's people, Israel, didn't escape judgment, and the angels don't escape the judgment, how, how do you think you as Christian can escape judgment if we choose to follow these ways of the world? Again, that's the warning, context of a warning. Third example he gives is the Sodom and Gomorrah. We actually know this and we talked about this. And basically what? They were the, into their sexual immorality, the abomination to God. They were judged by the fire, if you remember, right? And 
What you don't know is this, that the fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah 2,000 years before Jesus was possibly, a lot of scholars says this, still burning in Jesus' day. It's a southern part of the Dead, Red, Dead Sea, meaning the people could literally travel about 30 to hour to go there to the site that there is some heat still burning on the ground. And when Jesus referred to them literally about this, he says, you know, this is what happened to those who misbehaved, right? This is what happened once you went against God's law, once again, the perverted relationship came in, the homosexual relationship, and now the people are again telling us that if now, guess what? What happened to them? This fire is still burning. And the fire that burned for ages, he says. And Jesus puts them and says, don't you forget there is fire that's still burning. So there's a possibility that some kind of sight of these things were burning still. But now, that's what he's saying. As Christians, we should not follow the way of sexual immorality. And again, that's the warning here. But we are living in a day now, people are telling us that if you say anything against homosexuality, you are guilty of sex discrimination. And that's what we're dealing with today. But all I'm saying is, look at the letter of Jude. Right? This little letter, one-page letter says this, Now these men are leading you down that road, and don't think that your God will not judge you if you actually follow that road. I cannot emphasize this more. It is a very serious matter to Jude. That means it is a serious matter to us. Why? Because the Bible is speaking clearly about this issue. Amen? Now, if your creed is corrupted, your conduct obviously will be corrupted, right? But if your conduct will be corrupted, what happens? Your character is going to be corrupted as well because your character is a result of your conduct. Act reap a habit. So a habit reap a character. So a character reap your destiny. Right? So the next thing he talks about, interesting to Jude, is here, their character. Right? He's, he's warning against the, the corruption in creed. Now the conduct. Now he goes into the character. And he brings the characters of three people in the Old Testament. First, he says, don't follow the way of Cain. Right? Who is Cain? First murderer in the history of mankind. The man who killed Abel. Right? Your brother, the that he was a son, a first son of Adam, right? We all know the story of Cain. But what was the problem of Cain? Obviously, Cain, who brought a self-styled way of worship, was rejected by God, and he got angry and eventually became a killer of his own brother out of jealousy. What was the actual problem of Cain? It's actually self-righteousness, self Righteousness. I will tell you why. What was the problem of Cain? Remember, God said to Cain and Abel, hey, bring me 
an offering, fellowship offering. Let's have fellowship. When God says to you, bring, you, bring me an offering, that means I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have a... When you say God has said, come and worship me, in the New Testament term, it means what? God wants to talk to you. God wants to have fellowship with you. In the Old Testament, especially in the ancient time, in the time of Adam, when God says, bring me an offering, meaning let's have a fellowship. Be connected to me. And then God called two human beings, two first brothers, Cain and Abel, bring me. But interestingly, the Cain brought the, all the produce from the, from the earth, and then Cain, the, the Abel brought, brought what? The, the lamb killed, and all bloody lamb, and they, he worshipped, but God only accepted and respected the, the Abel's. Uh, we know the story of Abel's uh, the offering, but he rejected Cain's. People say, some of the theologians say, the reason is God demanded substitutionary atonement, meaning it has to be bloody sacrifice, which kind of points to Christ. It has to be sacrifice, not the produce from the earth. It could be that, and I, I also agree with that. But point is not clearly that. I think point is Cain did not follow the instruction from God, right? Meaning Cain is basically saying, I can approach God in my own way. God said, if you want to approach me, you need to approach me with this. There was a clear order of worship. But Cain said, no, I can do whatever I want. This is a way that I'm going to worship you, God. This is my way of worship. That's the heart of it. That's the character of Cain. I want to do whatever I want. I'm right. And when that was rejected, what happened? He got angry. He was a man of anger. And out of anger, he killed Abel, his own brother. Became a first murderer in the history of mankind. But isn't it the self-style worship is the very heart of the religion of this world? I'm asking you, what do you think? That's exactly what it is, isn't it? What's the religion? We want to approach God, not in God's way, but in our ways, right? That was a very problem of the, the Judaism in the first century. Remember when Jesus was there? He said, you guys missed the whole point. You don't understand what God really wants. You think it's the legal it's do's and don'ts, and you think just observing the law somehow will save you. No, you need to come with a contrite heart. You need to come to the presence of God by faith. That's what he requires for worship, to have a fellowship with God. But they're too busy doing something, performances. But if you look at any religious system in this world, it's all about that. We've got to do something to approach God. But that's not the way of God. If you really want to have a relationship with me, follow my instruction. Come to me as I commanded you. In the Old Testament, they brought sacrifice, animal sacrifice. We'd be represent pointing to the cross. Someone had to die in your place to be forgiven your sin somehow so that you can be have relationship with God. And then Jesus Christ has done in Calvary. That's why he had to die as atoning sacrifice. And now God is saying to all of us, without Jesus, there's no one can come to the Father. Remember Jesus himself said that. You cannot go to God, and you can never understand God. You cannot even worship God without Jesus, my brothers and sisters. And I dare to say that. I know I might offend a lot of other religious people, but that's what my Bible tells me so. 
But the false teachers were saying the other ones. Oh, he's just one of the figure in the pantheon of religious figures. That's what's happening today, even in the Christendom. There's another way, possibly. Right? That's the character. He was a man of anger out of self-righteousness. And then he got jealous as he was being rejected. Now he actually killed his own brother. That's the way of Cain. Way of Cain is our ways. I want to do my ways. Even in the Christendom today, maybe we need to check our hearts, don't you think? Are we worshiping in my own way without Christ? If I just give more money, somehow God will bless me. And we treat God as a genie in a bottle, and we treat God's blessing as some kind of equations, right? You do this, you chuck and plug, and you will get the result. Hey, if you tithe, you're going to get blessed. Thus, we're going to tithe. It's like a plug and chuck. It's never about the relationship. And we become a huge problem. It becomes a huge problems in the relationship with God. Are we come to the Lord Jesus every time we come and as we come, as we bring ourselves into God's presence depending upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and because of what Christ has done and with that in faith in Him and with Christ in His way, we come and worship? Or are we doing our own things and we justify saying, oh, we are doing everything for the glory of God? Yeah, but there is an order of worship instructions come with a contrite heart by faith in christ jesus amen what about balaam there's another character named balaam some of you might know balaam some of you might not know balaam but if you look at numbers chapter i think 22 ish there's a story of balaam balaam was a prophet who was offered money to curse israelites the, when the Moses was leading um, in, in, the, in the wilderness, when they were in the wilderness, the Moabites realized that, hey, these huge group of Israelites are coming, and they're going to end up coming to our land. That's why we're going to destroy them. So there were, there were a huge war between the Moabites and Israelites. And guess who was the commander of the army during the time? Joshua. He was fighting, right? And then Moabites, the, king of, the prince of Moabite, went to Balaam, supposing the prophet, and say, I'll give you some money. Can you curse these guys? So there's a spiritual battle going on, right? Hey, we want them to be cursed spiritually. So they pay money to Balaam. And Balaam says, okay, let me ask God. And this is an interesting story because he actually asked God, God, can I curse these people? And God said, hey, you dare not curse Israel. How can you curse someone that I blessed? By the way, my brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, you cannot be cursed. Amen. Amen. People might curse us. They might try to spell upon us. Don't worry. If you're truly a believer of Jesus Christ, you are blessed. And if you are blessed, how can you curse something that is blessed by God? Amen. Amen. That's why we don't have to be scared. Like I was visiting Buddha's temple back in, in 2001, with my friends. I was visiting Korea, and then obviously they took, they took me around uh, some of the different cities in Korea, and then we went to this historical site, and then this huge Buddhist temple. 
And one of them were actually kind of baby Christians. And he was like, kind of like, hey, I don't want to go into that thing. I said, why? Because, hey, it kind of freaks me out. It kind of scares me. And I thought, as a Christian, we're not supposed to go there because we might be cursed. I said, that's nonsense. I was a youth pastor during that time. I said, no, 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 no. You need to clearly. How can you be cursed if you're blessed by God? And if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, by faith, God has already blessed you. So what I did was I actually went in with him, and I enjoyed their meals. They actually give you a meal. And people say, how dare you to eat the, as a Christian, to eat from the Buddha's temple? Why not? It's not going to do anything. It tastes good. That's the only way that I can eat vegetables. Right? Only time that I will actually eat vegetables. Maybe some of us can try that. But anyway, Balaam wanted to curse these people, but God said no. But he said, okay. But the Moabites brought more money, and he got more money, and he go, God, can I please curse him? Can I just do this? He said, God, no, you dare not curse Israel. He said, oh, I really want it. And that was the situation. And I'm sure you know the story. The love of money took hold of him. And one point, God had to speak to Balaam through his donkey. Right? I mean, can you imagine donkey speaking to you? Because he would not listen to God. He would not listen to anybody. He was so blinded, he could not see the angel of God blocking the way and the Balaam couldn't take it and the, I mean donkey couldn't take it anymore and donkey turned and said Balaam open your eyes that was a story very gracious of God to speak through the only mouth that was near at the time and I don't know why this is one of the puzzling passage why we call Balaam prophet and why did God even entertain with this guy well that's some other discussion that we can have but that's the character. He was a man of greed. That's a character we should not have as Christians. Amen? But look at what, what's happening today. Christianity is all about money. We say we are blessed if we have a lot of money. What about poor churches around the globe? They are not blessed. I mean, we have a problem when we start to understand what God is doing and what church is about just by mere bank account status. But that's what we do. How many people in your church? Hey, is you a lot of money coming in, flowing into the church? That's what we ask. That's what we think. So materialistic, isn't it? We, we value things by materials. We have to be very careful, my brothers and sisters. And then, Book of Revelation clearly says, in the last days, in the end of the last days, people will be more materialistic, even God's people. Everything is about money, isn't it, today? That's why it's not the politician really has a power anymore. It's the companies who has a billions of dollars who kind of control the politicians. That's what a lot of people say today. And I think it is true, somewhat. And as a matter of fact, if you study the book of Revelations, it actually says that. We'll talk about this later as we go into the book of Revelations in the future. But the way of Balaam, way of Cain, right? Balaam was a man of greed, as Cain was a man of anger. But what about Korah? There's another character named Korah, right? Well, he was a man of ambition that leads to rebellion. 
Who was Korah? Korah was actually a cousin of Moses. People don't know this. He was a cousin. He was actually jealous of Moses and his leadership. And he wanted to set up his own show. And he, you, you know, he just wanted to say, hey, Moses, you're not the only big man here. I have a lot of followers too, you know. Why it has to be you and Miriam and, and, and Aaron to lead this group? Why can't we just vote? Why can't we just do something? What can I be? That was Korah, okay, in the wilderness, in Exodus. There are those who are set up because man wants his own show, and he was a son of Korah. Now, what happened to Korah? We know what happened. God said, fine, I'll tell you, give you the answer. Say, Korah, come. Moses, come, everyone. And those who want to follow Korah, stand here. Those who want to, to follow Moses, stand here. And surprisingly, quite a few people and quite a many portion of the Israelites went to the camp of Korah. And God says, Moses, step aside. Moses, please step aside, God says. Because next time, as soon as Moses step aside, earth opened and the whole camp of Korah fell into the ground. That's in the Bible. They're called Korah's rebellion and ended up earth swallowing them up. That kind of things. God is talking about. Men of ambition who wanted to rebel against God's leadership. My brothers and sisters, we are living in an age the leadership and authority are not being respected anymore. And there's good reasons for that, I know. But we need to be under the authority of the Word of God and the church that is steadfast to follow the Bible and His Word. Amen? Very important. Well, these are the kinds of character that will emerge in the church if you don't deal with this problem Jude is saying. These are the problems that we are facing today. But isn't it true? It was not just a first century church problem. It's our problem today. Perhaps even in our church, small as us. Perhaps it's planted in our hearts. These anger issues there anger problems, and we call it anger management. We have this problem with um, money. We have this greed problem, and we feel depressed when God is not blessing us financially. We get depressed and get angry when God is not providing the things that we want. But God always provides Amen? Your need according to his plan. A lot of people ask me, Pastor, why is it we have a rich Christians and poor Christians? How can I not be the rich Christians? Well, I cannot, I don't know why. I don't know why God is like some ideology saying he has to be equally distributed the wealth. God doesn't do that. No, he doesn't. God doesn't give all of us $1 million each. He doesn't do that. 
That's not, no. He blesses differently. Some are rich, some are poor, even in the church. Why? According to God's plan. Really. According to his plan, he's going to provide you if you trust him. And he might provide you more than you need it. He might provide you so that you can go on with your life. Amen? We need to trust that. So it's not about how much money you are making, how much money you have, how much you're blessed by all this material and all this amount of money. No, it's really about your heart. Are we driven by desire for money? Just like Balaam? Unfortunately, some prominent Christian leaders are. And we value money and status, financial status, more than anything else. The book of James says you should not discriminate God's people. You know what was happening also in the first church? This is, the spirit of Balaam was so prevalent, even in the, the church of James. You know what, it, what was happening? You know, all the rich members coming to the church, they will reserve a best seat for the rich members, members who give a lot of offering. And they did not really care about those poor Christian, poor members. They can sit in the back. They reserve a special place for the rich, those who give a lot to the church, a special place. And James was so furious about it, if you read it right. How could you do that? You should be the opposite, he says. If you're rich, you should be modest. You should be humble, remember? The opposite. By the way, modern day term, I'm not, not going to say which church, but I was told, okay, some church, they reserve a parking lot but those have a luxury cars. They want the luxury cars to be parked in front of the church, near church. So they reserve it for only certain kind of brand of car, the luxury brand to be parked in the front of the church. And when I heard that, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was not real. But one of our members told me it is true. And I could not help myself to really think the passage in James. Spirit of Balaam. So do you think these are the ancient, ancient examples that doesn't apply to us? Oh, surely it applies to us. First, the spirit of Cain. We have a theological issues in the church today. We have, a, we have a financial issues of the material issues. Money issues, spirit of Balaam. We have a rebellious, the attitude problems in the church, the spirit of Korah. And Jude is saying, these are some things that you need to be very careful of, especially if you are living in the end of the last days. And he's writing to the church, still relevant to all of us today. Amen. Once your character is corrupted, guess what? your conversation will be corrupted as well because your conversation comes out of your character. The Bible says, out of the fullness of your heart, the mouth speaks, right? And 
So what sort of speaking characterizes these dangerous people, the false teachers and those who are going into their ways, who slip in their way into the fellowship? Well, first, they are grumblers and fault finders, right? And these are the people that says nothing is good enough for them. Be aware of people who join your fellowship because they are dissatisfied with another fellowship because they are not going to be satisfied in your fellowship most likely. Those who cannot stand in some other, other church and come to our church, hey, we have to be, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to stop them. I'll love them. But you have to be sure. And I'll probably give six months before they are not there. They are actually starting to be dissatisfied with yours. They are always grumblers and fault finders on the move in the church. Small or large, does not matter. All churches go through this. Our church went through this. Always looking for the perfect fellowship. And I say to you, if you are looking for the perfect fellowship, I'll tell you, don't join it. You'll actually end up ruining it. At the end, you'll spoil it. It is because if you are not sort of the... That's why people do what? Hop and shop the churches, right? Oh, it didn't work out here. You know, I'm going to go this way. Oh, we have a list of the churches. Flyers after flyers. The website after websites. People are broadcasting. And you know what? I'm going to look for some church. But I'll tell you, grumble and fault finders... They are slipping in, slipped into the fellowship all the time. And these are people who are influenced by the, according to Jude, by the way, influenced by who? False way of teachings. False teachers. But there are also another side of the speech, quite serious. There are boasters and flatterers, right? He says, they boast about themselves to pull up them, pull themselves up. And to pull themselves a bit further, they actually start to flatter. Did you know, my brothers and sisters, boasting and flatter goes actually together. And flatter is a very horrible thing. To encourage and to appreciate someone is great, even though they are not. To flatter them is to exaggerate, and you are doing it for selfish reason. You want something from them, so not to build them up in confidence. That's why be watchful for those who say always good things about you all the time. They're not your true friends. But we start to, we want to hang out with the people, only say good about ourselves, right? But that's not the people that we should hang out with. Of course, we should not hang out with those people who are so critical of everything. And I, I mean, I cannot say which one is worse, the flatterers and criticizer. It ha we have both. We struggle with both. We have to be careful, too, because we can be criticizing, we can be flattering, right? For whatever reason. That's why we need to check our hearts. That's why if you have a propensity to complain and grumble and criticize. Just hold your mouth. And if you are wanting to always trying to look to fit in and try to please others, be careful. Amen? 
there is a picture or demonstration, illustration, I should say, that there was a set of one businessman that he climbed higher than any other people by licking the boots of men above him and treading on the faces of the people below him. That, what an illustration. Right? That's what's happening. And I'm sure if you are in corporate world, <laughs> many of us, we experience this. But as a Christians, are we supposed to do that? No. Let the power of God, let the favor of God lead you and guide you in the path of integrity and dignity. Amen? And I'm talking to those Christians who are working in the marketplace. Do not flatter. Do not tread upon someone else so that you can be promoted. Just walk in integrity and dignity and see what happens. If you look at all the Bible characters that were very successful in the world, in the marketplace, for instance, like Daniel, Joseph. I mean, we have these guys and everybody named their kids Joseph or Daniel, thinking that, oh, someday God will bless them. Well, that's good. But if you look at them, they weren't there by flattering or, or trampling someone else. They are end up there by what? By God's grace. Right? God's favor. God was leading them. And whenever, that's why whenever we are blessed by God, we have to be very careful that whom we have to give our credit to. It's by God's grace and favor that we are there. For a reason. It's not just out of for your own happiness. God wants you to do something for the kingdom of God, for his work. We have to understand that. Amen? And these are the some things that we need to fight against. Now, that is the kind of corruptions slipping in through false teachers in the church. And Jude is writing against them. And I want you to see the progress of it. Right? Corruption of creed, what you believe. Your doctrine, your theology. Right? And your conduct, the way of life. And your character, your attitude. And that leads to conversation, way that we relate to other people. That's how this pattern of the world corrupts us. And the church must be alert. Jude is saying, you need to remember these things and make sure you, what? Content for your faith. To go through this painful struggle to fight against such things. Or you will die. Or you'll be judged. You'll be destroyed. Your body of Christ will be destroyed. That's the warning. I'm not trying to make it nice here. That's exactly what it says. I don't know what you are reading, but if you read the book of Jude, that's exactly what he's saying. There's no other way, isn't it? Starting from verse 17, he actually talks about how to deal with it. But we're not going to talk about it today. 
How do we'll talk about correction? How do we deal with these corruptions happening in the church? And Jude, in the last part, he actually puts down there how we should deal with this issue, right? The practical issue, practical way to deal with it. He will talk about it, and we will talk about this. We will study this next week. So please come back and join us if you want to learn how to deal with these issues in our life, in our church, in our family. But let's end with this. These are the problems that we can detect. And Jude is clearly warning us, be careful. These things are happening in the church, in your fellowship. And we are not exempt from that either. These are the things that that we will be always facing. But what do we need to do? Again, I want to go back to this, to the theme of this past, this letter, what is it? To contend, to agonize, to labor, to fight, and to finish strong. Finish our faith. Amen. No matter what, we, we fight for it. We contend for it. We don't give up. And as we're content for our faith and fight and agonize, labor for our faith, guess what? God's going to help us. <laughs> Point is, yes, when you contend for it, who's going to help you? Verse 24 and 25, even verse 1 and 2. Those who are called, you are called by God's grace. You are being sanctified by God's mercy. And you are being preserved by God's plan. Amen. Thus, you can contend for faith. It's not something so impossible. Yes, on your own, it is impossible. But God is God who keeps you. Amen. Thus, we need to be awake. We need to fight. We need to depend on God. Contend for your faith. Let me end this, this sermon with this. Number 624. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turns his face toward you and give you peace. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. Let's pray.